other than our great God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, has the words of life. Turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word, His holy scripture, His gospel, His gospel of mercy, and His, his gospel of warning to the glory of His name. Father, help me this morning. Do you honestly with this text? Help us see the meaning in the text. Help us not misinterpret it or misapply it or allow the devil to come in and misapply it to our hearts and souls as we leave here. But lay it do its work in all of us who belong to your son. And that is clearly a joyfulness. That, oh, what an amazing grace that you would save a wretch like me. Do that work by the presence of of your Holy Spirit with us. Amen. Amen. One thing throughout, I don't know, what are it, six, eight months? I don't know how long we've been in Hebrews, but one thing has been crystal clear throughout this letter, and that is God is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. But there is no such thing as grace and mercy if there is no judgment. If God is God, if He is holy and righteous and good and sin has entered His creation, then there is divine judgment. Then He is righteous and therefore He's a God of vengeance, pure justice, a God of a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, if that is true, then 
honesty, or say it this way, then real love towards others will include the biblical warnings of this danger. Not just positive promises. And that is exactly what we have interweaved throughout the book of Hebrews. In the 1800s, the Baptist preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, let us know, I totally agree with him, how practical the wrath of God is in grasping when he said, think lightly of hell and you will think lightly of the cross. Think lightly of the suffering of lost souls and you will soon think little of the Savior who delivers you from them. I can't think of another passage in Scripture that is more, many are equal to it, but more of a sobering warning against plain church. Plain a Christian than this text. It is a dangerous thing to water down the glory and the intensity of the truth of the gospel in whatever quote-unquote religious setting. On a Sunday morning in preaching or in a group, in a Bible study, in the church. There is a philosophy that has been permeating the American church for a long time. It says, look, only good and positive motivation. That's the only thing we would tell people and should tell people so that they feel comforted and only comforted. So therefore, never talk about God's judgment. And the more that that unbiblical view has crept in, the more the visible church does not have categories to actually understand the true gospel of Jesus. This letter, as you know, has been relentless in its warnings about the danger of slothfulness and carelessness and ears that spiritually just are bored and don't hear. Remember, back in chapter 2, he said, To the church! How shall we escape? I mean, there's, some, there's something like a tsunami may be coming that he's warning about. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And in chapter 3, in quoting God, the writer said, the Lord said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then he went on to warn us, Take care therefore, Christians, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart causing you to fall away from the living God. And then in chapter 6, that ominous warning. 
when he wrote, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance. Those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God in the community of Christ and they've tasted of the powers to, of the age to come, impossible to restore them again if they then fall away. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their open harm and holding Him up to contempt. And this text today reveals again that it is honest with people. It is a loving thing to speak about the truth of God and who He actually is. All of Him, oh, He's merciful. He's merciful because there is His wrath, there is no mercy without him being just in wrath. So, let's slowly work our way through this passage. Beginning with verse 26, the writer writes, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So he is clear there, I think, right? He says, for some, there is a fearful expectation of judgment. God judges. He's perfectly just. That judgment will be horrible. And therefore, it ought to be feared. This fury that he talks about in the text is unleashed at the fearful judgment towards God's adversaries, his opponents. And if the writer has not been clear enough, he goes on to say about God, in verses 28 and 29, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was set apart or sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. So he goes to the law of Moses, the law where God gave to the people, not directly, but through an intermediary. And he says, there, God's punishment was death for those who set that law aside. He says, but now God has spoken to us in these last days by His Son. It's how He opened the letter, isn't it? He came personally. This is my beloved Son. He says, so therefore, if that was true under Moses, then how much comparative, worse punishment for rejecting His Son.
So here's God's judgment. And His judgment is described here as a punishment that is worse than death. Under Moses. Because it goes on after death. And so the question that the writer, he puts to every one of us, quote, Christians in this world, he's, he's, he puts this question to us. Do you actually believe in the God of the Bible? Because verses 30 and 31, he says, and it begins with this word, for, which means he's making an argument for what he just said about God's fury, a fire in judgment. He's arguing for that now. He says, for we know him. And that's the question. Do we 21st century Christians know this one true God? For we know Him, here He is, Him who? Who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. And He concludes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If our view of God does not include this, then it's a distorted view. And it's a radically confusing view that will be confused if it took the Bible seriously. God is a God of vengeance, and to fall into His vengeful hands is a terrifying prospect. And it is precisely this God that our culture and that culture that has seeped into many, many, many churches, it is precisely this God outside the church and inside the church that it does not want to hear about. And for many who say they believe in divine wrath, and I don't doubt that they do believe in God's wrath in the future judgment, but they go on to say and live out, but it's not something that we should, particularly on a Sunday morning as a preacher, be clear about or talk about. Because there has been, very recently in church history, particularly in America, particularly from the seminary that began this stuff that I went to and graduated from, a philosophy that just permeates. And then eventually, it, it goes like this. It says, hey, let's, we want to build churches and have people grow, so let's put out surveys to the unbelievers, to the unchurched, and ask those persons, meaning those who are adversaries of God, 
the moment. Those who are darkened in their sin, let's ask them, you know, what, what, what would you feel that you would like Sunday morning church service to be like? And then you mold in the structure of your public services around that and then invite them to come. You give them what a darkened, unregenerate heart would like. This philosophy of seeker sensitiveness in order to grow the church has created a God in its own image. In the image, in other words, of our natural, rebellious, unregenerate felt needs. Instead of creating or being or proclaiming the one true God. Instead of reflecting the image of God in the way that He has revealed Himself in history, in the person and work of Jesus Christ laid out in Scripture. So, now, looking at the text, here's the big question. Who is God like this toward? In, I mean, in this particular text, in this context, who is He like that toward? And the text tells us, He's like this for those whom there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Go to verse 26, start at the beginning, read it slowly. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But instead, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In other words, there are two possibilities. A fearful expectation of judgment or a sacrifice for my sins. And this means that in the context, sin is what God is angry about. And it means that He has made a provision for escaping His fury which he's been writing about the whole time. How? The sacrifice of his son in the place of sinners. That's the gospel. That's Christianity at its core. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes no sense apart from the wrath of God. If there is no just divine wrath that we need to escape or to be saved from, then why did Jesus die? His death would be in vain. But His sacrificial death was not in vain. 
He died so that whoever would believe in him would not perish. But they would have everlasting life. For you see, he did not come that first time to condemn the world. But he came in order that the world through him might be saved. From what? I fear too many Christians don't ask that question. I'm saved. From what? Oh, I don't know. I'm saved. I'm a Christian. That's another way of saying I'm a Christian. The answer is clear because it permeates in clarity throughout the New Testament. You're saved from God. And yes, this is not this morning. Oh boy, are you saved unto God too? You're saved from God's Wrath, that's what you're saved from. That's what he goes on to say there in John 3. You're already condemned, that's the problem. You're already under divine condemnation. You need to be pulled out of it. That's why he sent his son. Look, here's the Apostle Paul in a simple sentence. It's not a grammatically simple sentence, but it's a sentence, one sentence, and it's simple. In Romans 5, verse 9. Since therefore... We Christians, we have now been justified by His blood. Much more. Shall we, in the judgment to come, shall we be saved? Of course, He doesn't end it there. He's clear. Saved from what, Paul? We shall be saved, quote, by Jesus from the anger, wrath of God. That's the gospel. Now the pivotal question, again, who are they for whom there no longer remains a sacrifice? For their sins. The answer is in the if then. The if this is true, then this structure of verses 26 and 27. So see if you can see it. Read slowly. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Then, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So, slow down. What? First he says... He's talking about those who go on sinning deliberately. Now, the sinning there, that verbal form in the Greek is in the present tense, which, yes, it means present now, and as you keep 
going minute to minute. It continues to be present. But in the Greek, it denotes also very specifically a continuous, ongoing verb or action here of sinning. And and the word he uses is more literally translated, here's the adverb now, of sinning, willfully sinning or deliberately sinning. Secondly, that adverb, deliberately or willfully, is the first word in the sentence in Greek, which unlike English, because in English word order is crucial for for, for grammatical correctness. Like you have to have a subject before a verb. And the object comes after the verb. Not so in Greek because it's a very highly inflected language, which means the, the changing of the endings on the exact same words tell you what that word is doing in the sentence. So where you put it, it this is why Greek writers often, what's their main emphasis? Or like we might highlight in dark as opposed to lighter ink or something. There's a highlight that they put an emphasis by what they choose to say first, particularly like an adverb. Willfully is how he starts it. Ongoingly. Sinning. Okay, next. Let me say, this was really nice. Let me, what I, I'm going to give my daughter Lindsay's exegesis of the text. I asked her yesterday morning, hey, here's the text. What do you think it means? She nailed it. Just read it, thought about it. She's been in Hebrews. I think, so it's clear. So let me say first what it's not. What he's referring to is not the normal, real Christian life of struggling against our embedded sin and sin nature, from which we do act out in sin and we repent and ask forgiveness. He's not referring to that. Remember the context. And this, let me just summarize and say it this way. What's he saying? He's referring to the willful Ongoing, intentional, voluntary rejection of what he's been writing about. The rejection of the sufficiency of Christ Jesus as the only sacrifice alone that can take away your sins. And remember, therefore, in context, You must not go back to animal sacrifices. You must not go back to Jewish legalistic ceremonial law, thinking that in some way could be added to Christ. That's what he has been preaching to them. And if they don't hear it, and some go ahead and pursue that route after the clarity of the gospel, he says there's no more sacrifice. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately now, in the context of this letter, after receiving, here, oh, that's, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now that word knowledge in the Greek is not the normal, just pure gnosis. 
It is epinosis, meaning the epi, which becomes its other word. You take that little prepositional phrase, it becomes a compound word in Greek. It means not just knowledge, but it means full. A full, clear, real, you have the real understanding and recognition of the truth of what the gospel is teaching. Full knowledge. In other words, what he is saying, you know fully what I've taught you so far in Hebrews. You could read, you know this, you're being warned. And so this person, a person for whom no longer remains a sacrifice, is the person who's rejecting precisely what the gospel of Jesus reveals. That it is Christ in His death alone that can save you from the wrath of God. And he offers that freely to you. And you can therefore never work for it. But just receive it. In other words, it comes by faith. Trusting in it. And that alone. So this unpardonable sinning here. Refers to the extent with the knowledge and the willfulness of sinning against the grace of Christ that that person knows full well. And at that point, those persons, according to this writer, which he'll say in a few paragraphs down, they may become like Esau. He, he, was, he said it this way in chapter 12, See that no one of you is unholy like Esau who sold his birthright. Okay. He had a birthright and he knew he had a birthright. It was epinosis. He knew he was the inheritor as the firstborn. And he, with that knowledge, sold. Because he was hungry for a single meal. And here's his warning. He goes on to say, For you know that afterward, when he, Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he found no place within himself to repent. Though he sought it with tears, And at the end of verse 27, these people are called adversaries. A fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This means that he's talking about people then with a full knowledge of the truth. They are churched. There are those who have been churched and they have fully rejected God's grace. And they are now His adversaries. They are apostates. 
which only, you can't be an apostate if you were never one who came and said, yes, I believe. Okay, sure, baptize me. I make my profession. Yeah, I'm gonna, and you walk there in Christ's community. By definition, those are the only kinds of people who could be an apostate. So now notice the process in this text that these people go through in order to become an apostate. Verse 29 says, they trampled underfoot the Son of God. These people have a full knowledge of what Christianity teaches, of what the gospel is teaching about God and about sin and about salvation in Christ in Jesus alone and His death on a cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. And instead of what happened to them, instead of them actually receiving Jesus, oh no, they became churched. But instead of actually being changed by Him, what happened is they got a little religion. And then finally, and arrogantly, his words, they took their foot. And stomped on Christ, the great Savior. And they moved on to other things. Or the other way he... What he says about them, he says that they have profaned the blood of Christ. See that in verse 29? This person has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. That's strong language. But if I were to translate that literally, it is, they have deemed common the blood of Christ, which I think is stronger. These people, in other words, sat under the preaching of the biblical truth of the gospel of grace in Christ alone, week after week, month after month, for some year after year. And in the end, they deemed Christ death. It's common. It's not extraordinarily great. I mean, you know, football or Christ. Hmm. Shopping for clothes, new shoes, or, or Christ. My career, or Christ. Uh, let's flip a coin. Let's see which. As if the body of Christ, Jesus' bride, as if the blood of Christ and His presence in the community and in the gospel is not the most valuable reality in the universe. They have treated as common the blood of Jesus. And the end of verse 29 says, and they have outraged the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of grace. They've tasted 
the grace of God by being in the body of Christ physically. By being in the church, being in the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit, dispensing the grace of Christ in the church that he built. And then down the road, it could be true of them, of those ones who will not pay attention and they will go back to Judaism. They finally revealed their true colors. They, a lot of these people would do that. They had all kinds of these outward signs of excitement towards Jesus. Down the road, the true colors come out and becomes revealed that they were stiff-arming the Holy Spirit of grace all the time, refusing to be moved by the Word of God and brought to repentance and to a soft heart of faith toward Him. And so eventually they just make it really clear and throw it away. That Christian thing is unnecessary. For these people, the writer says, God is a consuming fire. A fire of fury. A terrifying judgment awaits. That's the best I can do in my exposition of the context and what he's saying. So, let me ask this question, because Joe, there's no more temple standing in Jerusalem. There hasn't been since AD 70, a few years after this guy wrote the letter. So that means no one's in danger ever since then, right? My answer is no, not right at all, because the principle he's talking about, it manifests itself throughout the last 2,000 years in different ways. The main point of is it abandoning Christ. The main point is being a person that has come into the knowledge of Christ and the full knowledge of Christ and a profession of faith and then chucked it. So let me, before I close, give two examples. Just, okay, you can take it as you want. You can question me later. What, okay, I'll just my shot at it. Say, in what ways can this happen? Let me, so here's just two. Let, let me give one. First, I think the experience that's being described here is a great danger to all those young people who grow up in the church with Christian parents. Hearing the gospel their whole lives, it's their culture, hear it on a regular basis. And at some point as they grow into teenagehood, they professed faith in Christ, maybe at a camp, home group, in the church service, they get baptized. They have all kinds of outward appearances. They are not living in promiscuous sex or drunkenness. And they're on the straight and narrow and all those kinds of ways. This is how they're raised. But as the Barner research or Gallup polls show, 70 to 75% of those who look like that at age 14 to 19, have nothing to do with the bride of Christ. 
Many of them say, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in that. Because at some point, as they grew older, they go off to college, trade school, the workplace. That outward profession wanes. Their lifestyle follows the enemies of Christ. They reveal, let me put it this way, what happens? They reveal that all of that outward stuff was mere cultural Christianity and not the evidence of new birth in them. And so as to become more and more independent as young adults, they begin to embrace more and more the lies of their own sinful nature and desires. And their soul is open to the lies of all the competing worldviews and philosophies to the go against the gospel. And they grow colder and colder toward the thought of God's truth in Jesus Christ. Time passes. And it becomes clear by their actions, they care nothing for the church, the bride of Christ, because they have forsaken Christ in the gospel himself. They didn't pay attention to the warnings about their hearts growing hard to fight against it. They can still rattle off Bible verses, Bible stories, Bible truths. They can tell you the gospel, what it is, what it teaches, simply. But ultimately, personally, it means nothing to them. But in willful defiance, they turn away from Christ, the gospel of salvation from the wrath of God. They are apostates. The Apostle Peter talks about this. I mean, again, I, that's, I know that's heavy, strong things to say. And again, you've heard me say this before. Okay, I don't feel I'm nearly strong enough like to these Bible guys at times. Here's how Peter refers to apostates. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, he wrote concerning them. For it would have been better for them never to have known. There's the knowledge thing. It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it. Turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallowing in the mire. This is, lived, this, is, this, is, this is the church age. This is how it's lived out. Many of us saw the movie, 
last week. I actually read the book this last week. It's, the book's much better than the movie that the movie was based upon. Of the Jesus Revolution, the Jesus Movement, late 60s, early 70s. And it, it portrayed something that was extraordinary of what happened. And the Holy Spirit did really move in extraordinary ways with these young hippies. And you see the excitement and the baptisms and going to every church meeting they can. That is utterly true. And so many of those young hippies who were so excited for Jesus are now 76 years old. And they have been walking with Jesus all these years. Raised families and, he's, and Jesus has taken them through all kinds of stuff. But the other part of it is, many of those same people so excited, within three months they said, I can't take this anymore. I'm going back to promiscuous sex and drugs. And have lived that way for the last 60 years. Or 50 years. Or three, four years later. All right, so let me, what, what, one other little application of this, and it's what I brought up earlier. And, that's so why I think it's such a danger of what we've experienced in America called the seeker-sensitive movement. Because the seeker-sensitive movement, what it really is, is bringing an incomplete, mushy gospel. That, therefore, not only we got the regular problem with the true gospel, where nothing's guaranteed, now you're really opening the door to create all kinds of people who are quickly thrown into the idea that you're converted. And now you're baptized. Even though they have never been raised spiritually from the dead in new birth. And in that state, they're told, you're a Christian. And become church attenders and become church members and become church workers and musicians and lead worship, teach Bible study. They speak the Christian lingo. They have some kind of an assurance that they're given that everything's okay with them when they die with God. But time shows. Yes, see what happened is they didn't like their life and that's true. And they came into a new community and they liked that new culture. They wanted to get away from the old and they got new friends. But all the while, deep down through all that experience and even expressions of joy, they were locked in their unregenerate state. And then it takes time where that unregenerate heart slowly comes out and shows itself in its hardness towards the gospel. And eventually, they desert Christ. These are the people you, oh yeah, I used to be a Christian, or I've tried that Christian thing, I was on that kick. And they have trampled underfoot the Son of God and treated as common the blood of Jesus and there is no repentance to be found in them because God has declared it's enough. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So, is this too harsh? Is the New Testament too harsh? 
Well, I'm going to go with the vote. No, it's not. These are the very people who have spurned the truth that they had full knowledge of and then callously rejected it. Okay, look. Boy, when we sing, I think, I sing with my heart, oh, what grace. How could this be? Because I deserve nothing better than the wrath of God. That's why we... Church in the world today, we are always and constantly desperate for biblical truth, for straightforward, expositional preaching of the truth of the gospel. But we need, we, we want more. He, the Holy Spirit is always moving through the Word, but at times in history, He moves in extraordinary ways, and we are with that, with that truth, desperate for a revival. Desperate for Him to work and start saving church people and unchurched people. That's exactly what happened in the first great awakening in the 1740s in America. All those pastors who love Christ continued to preach what they've always preached. And then you had Whitfield come over and you had Wesley come over too, etc. But what happened is that God in His providence sovereignly moved in a way that was extraordinary where vast numbers of baptized church members were getting actually saved. And you know one of the most famous sermons that everyone knows, even those who, who mock the title, they know it because of the title, and if, well, it used to be, even in a public school, if you did U.S. history, I don't know what they do now, everyone heard of the First Great Awakening in the, a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Written and preached by a pastor from Northampton, Massachusetts, whom I think is the greatest theologian that America has ever produced, Jonathan Edwards. So just let me give you a little teeny taste, jump in the middle of that sermon as he goes from, not in his own church, he went, he's in, he's in Massachusetts, he went to Connecticut, to Enfield, Connecticut, to a church there, and it's jam-packed, and this is what he said. Yes, hopefully there were some unchurched people there, but the vast majority of people, of course, in America at that time, if they're religious, which is most everyone, belonged to a church. And so in the middle of that sermon, this is what Edwards said as he looked down at his manuscript. And once in a while, I would look up at them. Here's the point. Many of those people came fleeing to Jesus and bore the fruit of it for the rest of their lives. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, is led. And to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. 
The floods of, of God's vengeance have been withheld by a dam. But your guilt, in the meantime, is constantly increasing and you are every day storing up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back. So he looked at them and he said, and thus, all of you that never passed under the great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new, all of you are in the hands of an angry God. He got clear with the gospel and salvation in it. But nothing held him back from clarity. God moved. So here's the question then. Can we here in this room say verse 30 and understand it to be an intricate part of the gospel. Verse 30 says, For we know him who said. Is that the God we know? We know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Then the text says, and he's speaking to the church, the Lord will judge his people. And this is the context of. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Lord will judge His people. The implication is, the Lord makes distinctions among His people. In the original context of what He's quoting is from Deuteronomy 32, right? Which consisted, that's Israel. And in Israel, there were always those who were not believers, though they're in the community and under the covenant. Outwardly, they shared in God's blessings. Inwardly, they were hard-hearted and rebellious. The Lord judges His people. And the same is true in the church. That's a picture. That is, the visible earthly church during this age does not and will not ever contain a pure body of genuine believers. There will always be weeds with the wheat. There will always be goats with the sheep. But the day will come when the Lord judges, distinguishes between the weeds and the wheat, the sheep and the goats, He will judge His people. So here's the question that everyone should ask of themselves. Which am I? Don't play Christian, but believe. This glorious gospel, good news that is laid out in the book of Hebrews. 
so that you would say from your heart, what a Savior. What a glorious gospel to cling to. In other words, be a person who hears and clings and holds fast to the words of Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22. Therefore, Christians, since we have confidence to enter the presence of God, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that He opened for us through His sacrificial death. Therefore, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What mercy. What grace. What amazing grace. That's why it's so sweet a sound that saved a wrath-deserving wretch like me. Let's make this our prayer and our praise as our hearts are continually being prepared to receive communion. Stand up.